0: Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a beautiful rainy day in California. Nice to be able to say that a lot this winter. We don't normally get that. But as I've done in the past, I want to preface, and I've done with a couple episodes. I want listeners to know we're going to talk about some sensitive subjects today. I'm not here to raise any other trauma in someone's life. Um, We're going to talk about prisoners and prison. And so if that's something that's sensitive to you, please just be aware of that. But today I have a guest I've been wanting to talk to for quite some time now. I was introduced to her amazing organization. In a documentary film that changed my life and I've talked about multiple times on this podcast which was The Wisdom of Trauma with Dr. Gabor Mete. She is a Grammy award-winning producer for her work on The Defiant Ones. She has been a producer and post-producer on dozens of television projects, documentaries, and directed several films. Today, her journey has ha- taken her to be the founder and executive director of the Compassion Prison Project, something I'm just so fascinated to talk to her about today. Compassion Prison Project is a grassroots nonprofit organization with a core belief that it's urgent to bring humanity and compassion to those living behind bars, and that these acts will transform our society. So today, I want to welcome Fritzi Hortzman. Fritzi thank you so much. I, I've been waiting to talk to you for so long, so I'm so grateful that you're to here today.
2: Thank you so much, Juliet. It's so good to be here.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm just—I uh, I, I love diving right in. Um, those who know me— I, you know, we're going to talk about your organization as we get deeper in the conversation, but I I wanted to know what it was like for you the first time you walked into a prison knowing you were going to help someone. What did that feel like to you?
2: Well, I didn't really know I was going to help someone. I didn't, I was just volunteering. I didn't know what the day had in store. Walking into those gates, I noticed there were no trees. And I asked someone, where are the trees? And he said, we have to keep the sight line open. So, mm. and I said, "What's a sight line?" He said, "You know, we have to be able to shoot the person." And I thought, "Wow, they've sacrificed uh, like a human environment to be able to kill somebody." So that was my very first impression walking into the prisons. And then I was greeted by a hundred men wearing, you know, aloha lays. And so immediately when I walked in the prison, I was disoriented and. My preconceptions were completely obliterated, and from the rest of that day, I ended up hearing their stories and crying for the rest of the day, so that day changed my life.
1: I was going to say, what a juxtaposition of going from that to Lays in Hawaii, which is such a symbolic uh, welcoming and love and uh, aloha and... uh, you know, I I myself, I don't know how much you really know about my background, but I worked with some prisoners in death row and uh, I worked on the Scott Peterson case years ago. It was on uh, on death row that got thrown out and life in prison at this point. But, you know, most people, when I was working on that case, they had like a visceral reaction to me. Like I literally uh, sitting at a dinner party one night and just got obliterated by people around the dinner table. I had to leave that it was just so. You know how could I have compassion for someone that might have or might not have? I mean, how do how do you explain to the average person that we should have compassion for someone that has been in this type of scenario?
2: Well, I guess, you know, when I heard those stories, I realized the amount of trauma that the men and women had, and I had just a month before I walked into prison, I had just finished reading. The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and mm-hmm. in that book, I real reading that book, I realized that even my behavior was not who I was. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a product of being a traumatized child. And so, when we start really diving into the the mechanics of brain science, we understand that there are basically two um, I would say two people in there, and I would say one of them really isn't a person. It's a react a reactive entity that will do anything it has to do to keep the body safe. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you explain a, a father shaking his child? What's yeah. that all about? That, there's no threat, but the body, a crying baby can be a threat to a, a grown man. And it makes no sense, but that's what happens when we are in fight or flight.
1: Yeah, well, that, so, you know, I recently had a guest on, Victoria Rusk. She was a, a mitigating uh, consultant, which then, you know, that's in the sentencing project, uh, process of the trial. Uh, talking about that she's really about feelings before facts she really tries to get to the feelings of things and but you know how how do we get attorneys I want to talk about the early part of the process instead of just in the prison part of the process. How do we get the attorneys or jurors to start thinking in this manner? because I think you know it's it's such a hard place when you have somebody sitting there being, accused of murdering their child or murdering their mother or how do we get at the beginning part of this? Cause I, you know, my, my audience is a lot of attorneys and how do we speak to them?
2: Well, I think the first thing we have to consider is, is it important? Is it is prevailing is winning the most important thing or is the truth, the most important thing and all the underlying factors that go into this, this case, uh, I, do never want, I never want to diminish the horrors that a parent or any family member feels when their mm-hmm. loved one is, is injured and hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. We can't, you know, I, I have two loved ones that I live with. If anything happened to them, I don't know what I would do. But remember, mm-hmm. the criminal justice system, the way it, it is created now, is basically a system of fight or flight. It is a reactive system, and it is a punitive system. So now that we're evolving as a society, just you know, we can see it throughout, throughout examples all day long. We are Mm -hmm. moving into our cortex. We are not in fight or flight anymore. So I think it's incumbent upon both sides that we start really staying in the cortex and not, not winning at all costs because the costs are, are much bigger than just um, a family member dying. It's also the, the person who created this crime and their family members there. Remember when a person goes to prison, their family goes to prison. Mm
0: -hmm. And when a
2: child is killed, that family's child is in a Mm -hmm. sense killed as well. Mm -hmm. So we really have to take really good care. I mean, restorative justice principles are the things to me that make the most sense, but we also have to deal with the um, criminal justice system that we have. And so you know, a lot of people that are lawyers and judges are traumatized, and you can you can see it in their comments in the way they treat um, people who commit crimes. Mm-hmm. There isn't the justice the justice isn't blind in that moment. You know, I mean, I think of the case of um, Gabriel Hernandez, who is a th- an eight year old child that was murdered by his his mother and the boyfriend, and what the judge said to him. You know, you're a monster. And that's not, a, that's not a prefrontal cortex statement. That is a statement of judgment. And look, I have a hard time watching that, that documentary and, and thinking about the, the facts of that case, but we have, to, we have to stay in our cortex and dive deep into what happened to those two people mm-hmm. to, to make them wanna destroy an eight-year-old boy. That's what we, well, that's that's, what, that's what, what we have to start looking at as a society. Earlier,
1: right? How do we get the message out to attorneys to look at themselves, then to look at their clients, versus just this is my win, this is my at all cost like conversation you're talking about? How do how do we have that conversation with attorneys that say this? I've done it this way my whole life. Why would I change it?
2: Well, the first thing we have to really start looking at and become aware of is being confronted with these kinds of crimes on a daily on a daily basis, and um, for the judges too. That's traumatizing as well, and one of the one of the symptoms. This you know, it's a moral injury that they're going through. They're seeing, hearing, or witnessing events that go against their moral fiber. The problem with moral injury is you lose your sense of empathy, and that's mm. that's where we are here in the criminal justice system. That we can just process people through um, willy nilly, almost without really considering that this is a human here. This is a mm. human with great human potential. And, and actually, it's not just a human. This is a divine being. If you ever looked at the eardrum, if you ever looked at an eardrum, you know there's something completely extraordinary just about that. And, you know, or, you know, the fact that you're to just the whole mechanism of being a human is a miracle. And when we, when we process people like they're not, like they're something we have to deal with instead of something we have to really revere. Re- revere mm-hmm. at all points, from birth to death, at all points in in the journey. We revere yeah. them and wonder what's going on here. What happened to this person? And we have to also say, what happened to me? What happened to me that I'm so callous? That I'm so shut down? Are you numb? Are, what are your symptoms of PTSD, lawyers and judges? What are they? Because you know, I'm working with officers, and they they've they've seen and done things that shouldn't that they shouldn't see or shouldn't do, and it shuts you down. And are you numb? Are you watching Netflix all night? What are you doing? And are you drinking? Is you know, are you eating? Are you eating Cheetos? You know, that's. But that's you laugh. But, but that's, that's that's poison.
1: The reason I laugh about it is because we are so blind to it. I, I don't. I don't belittle it whatsoever. So I apologize if that no, comes no, no. off. Because I. But I come to the point where it's like I feel like it's so obvious that we're missing it. Right? It's so obvious that we are. You know, obviously we're talking about, you know, kids in schools with guns. Like it, it's just building and building and building and building until we get to this point of what's what's going to be the all, end all destruction and, and not even a shooting in Sandy Hook with 20 children is changing us. That's, that's why I ask, like, how far, how deep do we need to go to get, you know, people to really hit this compassionate place where it's not just about the win? I, I agree with you.
2: Well, and it's also an inquiry into the sacred because – in all of our differences that we have, we've forgotten each other as a sacred being and and our own, um, our own divine presence on this earth. And mm-hmm. so when we start, when we walk into that courtroom, which should be a place of reverence and a pr- place of truth, like the highest ideals of our society, and when we ignore them or when we're numb to them— um, you know, it's sacrilege, basically, and so this right. is w- this is the this is the call to your listeners: is that remember who you are. It's like you are a divine being in a divine courtroom, and this is mm-hmm. these are two divine people who have hurt each other or who have been hurt. Mm-hmm. Both of them right. been hurt, and it is from that place that we proceed. We proceed with dignity and love and caution. And it, it, it can't be a rubber stamp here. This, these are humans, which is you know this is in in all of our systems. All of our systems are traumatized, and all of our systems um, can't deal with the trauma because we're all traumatized. So you know mm-hmm. the first, my first response to trauma and, that I've seen in my in my past is I don't want to deal with it. You know I don't want to l- listen to my sister cry. I don't want listen to my mother yell. I don't want to let l- see my father drink. Um, I I don't want to deal with it, but that's not how that's not how it gets processed
0: mm-hmm.
1: i agree because there, you just hit on a subject where you know there seems to be an attitude of just giving up on the incarcerated people are just like you know who wants to hear from them who wants to, who cares what they do with their life they're you know they've done this and oh, how do you how do we get others to care like i, I know that's probably been one of my challenges in my life as i care so much about certain things people just like well what's the big deal but it is a big deal right i mean isn't it doesn't it change our society if we, I mean, how, how do we get them or how do you explain this to someone who just doesn't care?
2: Well, what I've been seeing, the the comments I see sometimes on when people watch Step Inside the Circle or it's, you know, they get what they deserve, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't, they were punished before, way before they ever committed a crime. Violence was a solution in their lives since they were, you know, one years old violence was always the way the parents behaved towards them whether it was mm-hmm. physical abuse sexual abuse you know every ace every ace they're available to them they've witnessed most of these men and women so when violence becomes the solution how how else are they supposed to behave right. you know so they get what they deserve they've they didn't ever, they've only deserved violence. Is that, is that what they're saying? I mean, I think people who have these reactions really have to dig deeper and find out why they're so angry at people that commit crimes. Are they, have they been a victim of crime? Um, Or is this something they've just heard and been told all their lives? Um, But all of those things are, are deep work that needs to be done. Um, You know, the, the request here is that we do the deep work And we find out why we hate the people that we're hating and why, why are we making enemies? Because basically that's a violent solution, right? Creating an enemy. So, and that's what the justice system has done is it's created enemies and that's not truth. That's violence. No,
1: I I couldn't agree with you more on that is like, that is, you know, like you said, eye for an eye kind of thing. Yes. Because, you know, when, when jurors are sitting there and, I mean, I know myself sometimes I have to catch myself just hearing something on the news and, you know, someone pleaded, you know, mentally insane. And you're like, okay, well, that's just a way to get out of it. But we, instead of it saying saying it like that, which I think most people think, we really should stop to say, yeah, what happened? Because I can tell you, I've looked at these school shooters and I can walk through Their backgrounds, and I'm not a psychologist, but you can tell something has happened to these kids somewhere along the line, and they need power, they need revenge, they need anger. They have anger, you know. So it's, it's, it's. How do we get society to just stop and and really sit in the courtroom as a juror and say, yeah, wow, that's not his fault. But are we giving those jurors an alternative? See that I think that's where I want to talk to you about today is that, you know, when you're sitting on a jury, and they say this person did this. Did he or didn't he? And if he did, he gets this, right? So there's no third option in there that says he has been abused. He has been, you know, living on the streets as a four year old and that's all he knows. And what could be another option? I mean,
2: do you think that ever could happen in the court system? I think it's going to happen soon because I I think most of, I think a, a good portion of America doesn't agree with the way people are treated who commit crimes, but you know, um, the shame that people, the reason people commit crimes, um James Gilligan talks about it in his book Violence that that when a, a person is shamed, the the reaction is violence. they the, they they need to counteract that feeling of shame. And shame is a very is one of the lowest frequencies you can be in. So mm-hmm. anger and, you know, righteousness or or just rage is much higher than shame and and that kind mm-hmm. of gets you out of the shame but what really gets you out of the shame is love and compassion and seeing seeing a person as a human not as a you know as an animal or you know as right. as an enemy like m- i feel like most parents when they're in fight or flight they see their child as an enemy mm-hmm. i can say that for myself i would just rage at my child i would terrorize my child that little seven-year-old beautiful being, and I'm, you know, calling him out. And we, you know, it was, so you say, you know, this person made a choice, but is that a choice to rage at your child? Is that a choice? Right. And, you know, if I had my right mind, would I, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not taking accountability for the crime. Please, please, listeners, don't don't ever mistake this. I know I know the freedom that lies behind accountability. We we all must be, be accountable for what we've done, unconscious or not. But no one in their right mind would rage at a seven-year-old. Um, so I'm guilty, but I'm also accountable to my son. And I I talk to him about it every day. It's the only way we can heal those wounds.
1: Right. And healing is, has got to be part of that process. And I think that's where, uh, if I don't know if you agree with me or not, but... We're so far away from healing sometimes. That's what's one of the points of this podcast is how do we get to healing? How do we get through it and get to the other side to heal? Because, you know, there's we're just up against the world fighting all the time, right? We are just never take the time to let down and heal and find out what's the true issue. Like you said, you read the book. I went through the same process myself, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I had no idea my actions were based on the fact that I lost my brother, or I had no idea this is, you know, this is my shame, or, you know but it's all self reflection do we are we not taking enough time to do that as
2: individuals well there's a real important thing here and this is this is for everyone everyone who's ever listening to this is the way we've done things in the past we're coming to realize that the, that they don't work but we yeah. also can't demonize this this past we we really have to go forward with a clean slate basically you know um we have to go forward like you know prosecutors who prosecuted with dirty deeds let's forgive them and let's give them another chance let's give give us all another chance because when we're not in our right minds we're doing things and so forgiveness is for all of us and i, and I don't want to sound like like a liberal woo woo person but it's the only way we're going to get through because if someone feels shame for how they did it in the past they're not going to go forward and do it a different way. They're going to double down on what they did in the past. Look at the South. That's what the South is doing. Right. So we have to also raise our own tolerance for mistakes and for um, for our own our own ignorance and our right. own um, trauma.
1: And our own trauma, right? And I mean, so can you tell me how the percentage of prisoners that have experienced childhood trauma is there? Statistics on that?
2: Um, we've done our own research. We've researched. We've surveyed over three thousand men and women in prison. Our findings are ninety eight percent, but that's for the top ten aces. If you add things like racism, traumatic brain injury, uh, contact with the juvenile justice system, contact with foster care, being homeless, being in, living in extreme poverty. That is a hundred. Then you've got a hundred percent of the people in prison have have experienced traumatic events in their childhood, and these are just some of them. You know, losing a parent, losing both parents. Just the list goes on. Seeing someone die in front of you. I mean, that's not even an ace on the test, but you know, um, living without your parents for weeks and months on end. Well, that's neglect. That's that's physical neglect. Um, but these things, these. You know, you look at someone who goes to prison. It's not just sick. Like, I have eight aces, but I didn't go to prison, right? right. You're talking 20, 30 aces. You're talking this person living in, in violent conditions and fight or flight all the time. And then you expect them to thrive and get a job and b- bootstrap their lives forward. Um, we need some help yeah. here. And it's, yeah. you know, it's not, I'm not a re- Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I'm just a person who sees that some of these, some of these, Blanket statements aren't true, and, th- and we must dig deeper and and mm-hmm. and bring compassion to this situation. Because um, the moment you help somebody, they do find some bootstraps. But if they're in fight or flight, you try and get somebody to figure out how to pay their rent and uh, take their kid to school and get a job. You know you. T- Try and make any decision when you're stressed out, and it's it's not going to be a good one if it is a decision. And a, and you know, try and do a, a study for an exam the night before, right? You're not going to do as well as if you had five nights of good sleep and did your you know did your eight hours a day, whatever it was. Right. So, what what's an ACE? Oh, that's an adverse childhood experience. I'll list you the ten. So it's physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, parent or caregiver addicted to drugs or alcohol, parent or caregiver mentally ill, suicidal, um, or depressed, emotional neglect, emotional ab- abuse, no, uh, emotional leg- neglect and physical neglect, um, parent divorced or separated, domestic violence, and a household member going to prison. Those are the top 10.
1: Gotcha. So you got to go through that process with... Uh different prisoners to find out how many of those they may have. I know your list is longer, but then how do you, um, so you look at that. So how, how do you use this system to determine, what, what, what do you use it to determine?
2: Well, it's really what we're doing is creating an awareness campaign. Most people in prison don't realize they're traumatized and they don't know what, they know fight or flight, but they don't really know the mechanics of the brain. So it's all, it's really creating awareness. And this is also for the public. We want the public to understand what ACEs do to the brain, body, and spirit. Um, So we create, um, we'd have them stand in a circle and for each adverse childhood experience they've experienced, they take a step into, into the circle. And by the end of these 20 questions that we ask, we do the original 10 plus we add 10 more. What happens is this whole community of men or women, they all come together towards each other, and they get to see that they're not alone in what mm. they've experienced as a child. And what they mm-hmm. get to see is, as they say almost every time we do the circle, is we're more similar than we are different. And so, right. and they're all, these are all gang members, right, who have this, or former gang members who have this belief that this is my enemy across the way, this black man, mm-hmm. who, he's a Latin or whatever the story is. That's my enemy, but we're more similar than we are different. And we all, by the way, yeah. have eardrums, too. We all have. Right, right. <laughs> Basically, right. we're like 99,999,999 99, 99, 99, the same, except for some of our thoughts. But I argue that those are probably the same, too. Well, that that's what
1: caught me in the documentary. That was really such a, a powerful exercise to watch. Especially, you know, like I said, working on my own healing journey and realizing you're not alone. And that's where another thing in the court system is so so strange for me is because you have this setting, right? You got these jurors, you got 12 people here, and then you've got lawyers, but you are the person they're looking at. You are alone in that moment. So how, how do we how do we help the person at that moment? Like you said, winning at all cost, or I mean, I'm looking at, you know, pure meditations pre-trial, post-trial. Do you think any of that kind of thing would happen instead of isolating them so much in the trial process?
2: Well, remember, isolation is one of the worst things you can do for the brain. Right. Right. And um, I mean, that's what we're doing in California throughout the prison system is we're isolating people just for you know having a cell phone in your in your in your cell. Yes, that's, that's against the rules, but do we destroy their brains because they, they did something bad? They did something mm-hmm. that went against the rules. And so isolation, if you look at child abuse and child neglect, if you look at the child neglect, what happens to the brain, um, like with the Romanian orphanage, orphanages, orphans, their brain shrunk up to 30%. So we're losing actual brain matter from neglect. Neglect, we are humans. um, and the human is a social creature, and we need the serve in return. So, putting them in isolation is the worst thing we can do pre trial, during the trial, post trial, ever, right. ever, period. But the other thing I would suggest making sure if they haven't gotten their college or that they're doing schoolwork and that they're doing work and they're doing mm-hmm. their, they got their brain active, that they're doing breathing techniques, uh, EFT tapping, havening, um, all the things that we're teaching them in prison to, uh, regulate their nervous system because they are in a state of fight or flight. But really, and they should be going to groups every day. They need to be mm-hmm. sitting in groups and talking about their case and talking, talking about their their fears about what's going on, so that they they can present themselves. You know, like I went to a couple of trials uh, for some of the the incarcerated men that I've worked with, and it's such an a, an alienating situation. You know, very. The, and the person really isn't at their best. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not the man that I would, was working with. They're this kind of defensive. Mm-hmm. And at, at the time I went, they were wearing masks. So he just looked like a, a real thug. And I was like, "Well, this isn't. This isn't benefiting him in any way. He didn't get to wear a right. suit. Everybody right. else is in a suit or a robe. Right. You know, you're
1: isolated by what you have on. You're, you're isolated by what you look like. You're isolated that." in that sense absolutely it's it's that's a, it's a it's a different world once you step in through those doors of that courtroom correct
2: yes and it's biased it's a, it's a biased situation it isn't it is an equi- equanimous there's no feeling of e- equality and guilty until proven innocent it is really mm-hmm. um, it's really weighted the scales of justice are weighted in this in these courtrooms and it's more like there's, this is a pain in the neck than it is some, you know, a person's life, literally their life. And there are men in there that I work with. And I say men, because I've really only been working with men. There's 95% of the people in prison are men, but there are men in there that are, most of them are just glorious men. You know, they've done a really bad thing, but, you know, I, you know, um, Jacques Verdin, he's one of, another, he has another program called GRIP. And he says to the guys, he says, how many seconds did your crime take? And they'll say like three seconds, 10 seconds, maybe two minutes. Right. And then how, what is your life sentence? Right. what is your sentence? And then they'll say 300 years for 400 years life without parole. Um, that's my entire life. So for, for something we did four seconds in a state of fight or flight, We're paying with it for and and I'm not diminishing what they did. Please understand that. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. There used to be, you know, 20 years, maybe 20 years, this is enough for this person, you know, enough, enough. And it's like we really have to think enough. And it it's it's not about prevailing in the courtroom anymore. It's about what makes sense. Is this person fit to go back? And is he gonna harm anyone? You know, I'm working with on with these men and they're we're writing a book together called "Messages for the Youth," and it's going to be an anthology written by all the prisons in California, all all prisons in mm-hmm. California participating. They want to get the message home that you should not be doing this, but they're the ones; those are the messengers. These are the messengers to end to end gangs, to end war in our streets. And we're 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 basically keeping them locked up instead of sending them home. I mean, there's there's a guy he's programming code and trying to figure out how to create a a victim website where people who committed crimes can post their apology because they're not allowed to interact with the victims. At least there's a place for the the victim to go where he knows this person is is mortified about what he did. I mean this is a this is and he's in he's stuck in Ironwood prison right now. You know, we could use him out there to really amplify this work. So what are you doing, judges and and lawyers, by by getting a win, and basically we're all losing from this win. So you know we really have to start thinking, what are we doing? What are we doing? Um, these are these are divine humans.
1: How how do we answer to people that say if they did it once, they're going to do it twice?
2: Prisons are are and should be a pr- timeout. I don't think they should be called prisons. I think they need to look different. Um, but w- there are people who need a timeout. I needed a timeout as a, a teenager. So' I'm, I'm not against timeouts for sure. Um, I'm against pu- punitive practices. I'm, I'm against not seeing people for who who they truly can be, their potential given given the upbringing I had, every man in there probably wouldn't have been in in prison, although I've you know, I don't know right. Whatever, you know, or someone, given the upbringing my son had, no one would be in prison. So we got to start giving them that upbringing, right? We have to repair the harms that were done before instead of being continuing with the punitive practices. And, you know, any kind of neglect or disrespect, remember, prisons are a warrior culture. So you disrespect somebody, they're warriors. I mean, whether they're a gang warrior or an officer warrior, these are warriors, you disrespect them; that's their code, and they're gonna they're gonna defend their code. So that right there is there is that's crime and punishment right there, and um, both sides are gonna are gonna react that way. So we have to reimagine our prisons where the warrior is honored and revered on both sides.
1: Right. Recently, I had Scott Lewis on, and you know her Choose Love movement, and she was a mother of Sandy Hook child, and recently sued Alex Jones, and she's the program is so unbelievable. because She's starting with people at such a young age, compassion, action, love, you know, and and I don't know where we got missed with that, it, it you know that we've we've I don't know. I came from a very loving family to have compassion for others, you know. We were always. You know, my mom was always worried about who was going to be alone on the holidays, and you know that was just that was just in our DNA. Why why do you think that's missing so bad today? That especially someone who, you know, has committed a crime and we can't stop for one second to think something might have happened to them. Why why do you think we are just in that society today? Where did that get missed?
2: Well, you know, we went from a we generation in the '40s um, to a me generation, right? And I think all social change really happens when we when we gather together again and the thing about this polarization that we're experiencing again I mean this is I think it's a repeat from centuries of polarization Um, Mm. but polarization is really you know when you're traumatized you separate right you feel separate Mm -hmm. from the world so polarization is just a a symptom of trauma right I think that's that we feel separate we feel that there is there is an enemy out there unknown unseen or a republican Mm -hmm. or a democrat right so um who doesn't believe what we believe in it threatens who we who who we are we think we right. think um right. but you know that's the thing we need investigation we need we need investigation we need to really start looking at why we we stopped connecting with each other and you know covid right. was really an amplifier of that separation and i think mm-hmm we really have to get back out there get our brains back in the game and start making connections and listening to each other and not listening listening for their faults but listening to where we where we connect again where where we have our similarities which i believe are the same we all want a safe neighborhood to raise our children in and to educate our children and so we can thrive i think we all want the same things it it might look a little different but mm-hmm. fundamentally i think we all want the same things and how we get there we get there building bridges and going across those bridges together. Uh, yeah. We don't do it um, by citing out what's wrong. That's just a trauma response and not to call anyone out, but let's start looking at why, as I call it, you spot it, you got it. That one of our exercises oh, yeah. when you see it oh, yeah. out in your, if you hate something in someone that something you haven't worked out in yourself, Correct. And you know, if we can all just do some of our own work, we're going to have a better world mm-hmm. and a happier and a cleaner world.
1: Right. Look at ourselves. I, I caught the mirroring effect. It's like, okay, someone just ticked me off. And I'm like, okay, what what was that about me today that I'm really <laughs> upset about myself with? And other times I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I really like that about myself. But what do you do when you have a person who doesn't want to change? They don't want to heal?
2: I don't think that exists. I think, you know, a lot of the guys that are in level fours, they're in their level fours are like, there's no hope there. So what they have is security. Uh, Perceived security—they're with their gang, and they got their safety of the gang. So they do what they have to do to stay in that gang and that safety zone. But you give somebody hope—you give them a look at themselves that isn't that they're bad people. A look at themselves that they have value. I think most people are going to change. They're sociopaths in prison, um, but they're sociopaths mm-hmm. in corporations. So um, mm-hmm. you know, we just have to make sure we don't let the sociopaths out, but we don't treat them badly. We just. Keep them there, you know, that's keep them in the time out.
1: Right. Well, and that's you know, and 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 how do you see it differently? Like, you know, women being so much more emotional, men not being as emotional. Do you find it a lot harder to work with one or the other?
2: I've only worked with women a couple of times. And you know, what I what I'm so grateful when I go into women's prisons, they're they're holding each other, they're hanging out, they're more they're more feminine. They're they have nurturing yeah well they're all, and they're more allowed to nurture the thing is in men's prisons you're you're not allowed to really touch yeah. so they don't mm-hmm. have the balance the female balance that nature really wants us to have um you know even in even in homosexual relationships or you know mm-hmm. they're balancing and they don't get that and mm-hmm. an you know an a, an unbalanced male is a very dang, dangerous thing same with an unbalanced female but an you know they can't they can't kill as, as well f- females as men can. So mm-hmm. we really need to bring balance. And that's why a lot of, I think a lot of women are attracted to the prison work. A lot There are a lot more women that I see going into prisons than men.
1: Oh, well, interesting. So, you know, I, I'm i going to something throw something really radical out here for a second, but I, I just, I love this ACE program that you have. Don't you think it would be very interesting if we actually had jurors answer those questions before they actually made a decision? I mean, I just always thought, let's look at the jury system as well, because you have people that don't want to be there. They're getting paid nothing. It's taken up their time. You know, they're f- afraid because, you know, there's been times, I mean, you know, I've known people to be in court and the gangs show up behind the, you know, the guys sitting there and they're scared and that kind of thing. But I just think that the, that ACE program is so, could be used in so many ways. It could be used for the lawyer. It could be used for the jurors. I mean, I I,
2: I know it's radical,
1: but man, what I would just love to... You think it could ever happen?
2: Well, right now we're doing, um, we're about to do a veteran circle. I won't tell you the specifics yet because I want to yeah. surprise you. But um, we're doing a veteran circle, and I think if we did a judge jury and actually included the victim and the and the perpetrator in the, that circle, I think there'd be a l- lot more compassion. We call I it, think so too. Yeah, uh, we call it I the compassion so trauma circle. And that's what it is. It's to see each other. First of all, you're in a circle, so equality is is inherent in a circle. And mm-hmm. you know, it's not the podium and the you right. know the the right. judge and the jury are the room separated. Is so, exactly. So intimidating. Oh. So we put people on an equal footing. I mean, there 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 is a dis, there is an imbalance there because of the crime, the harm that was committed. Mm-hmm. But there's an inherent agreement that everyone here is human, and that's. That's the thing that the criminal justice system does now is it says you're, dehuman- you're, you're dehumanized before you're presumed innocent. Well, that's
1: yeah. I mean, that that's I look back at Scott Peterson's case. I mean, there were billboards, billboards all over Northern California about how many days until his trial and this and that. And then people were like, "How could you have taken that case, Juliet?" And I said, "Well, everybody has the right to a fair story. It's not about him. It's not about." It's about what happened. What is the truth? And so, how do we, as a society, when you jump on, you know, you've got so much social media and court TV and everything you're hearing, it's, it's, how do we get an equal footing?
2: We decide that that's what we're good. That we decide that those are the principles that we, that are required for a just society. We we elevate ourselves and we we elevate each other, and it's it's something we all agree on. And I, I know it might sound highfalutin, but this is this. Truth and justice is part of all of us, and I think we just we rise to this occasion, this occasion, this sacred occasion. Every day, every day in court should be a sacred moment, and that's what I ask of your lawyers that are listening: is remember the divine um, obligation you have to follow the truth in your client, but also in the, in the in the case. That's the you know this is this is. But the potential for forgiveness, grace, and and humanity is what's at stake here. And when we, we forget that, not only do we do it to others, we do it to ourselves. So let's elevate our own lives. It's really about our right. own lives. Gandhi says, be the change you want to see in the world. That means to right. me is if I want a just, gorgeous life, I have to be just and gorgeous. I have to really strive and look at my faults and look at the things that are, are missing and make sure those are addressed on a daily basis. And that's, what's available to all of us.
1: That's great, great, great advice. I mean, uh, so uh, we're going to start wrapping up here, but um, I want to read some off your website that I just absolutely loves. Like you know, your vision is, uh, you know, that all prisons become centers for healing, education, and transformation. All people, including prison residents, staff are ACE aware. I would love to put, Lawyers, courtrooms, judges, jurors—I would love to. And you and I need to talk about that more in the future. All people, including prison residents, staff, have a basic understanding of what trauma does to the brain. Scientific—I love that it is a scientific, proven, statistic. Um, that all returning citizens are supported as they transition from prison back to their communities, creating a reduction in um, recidivism, and that. Mass incarceration could end. That we could actually work with people to bring them back in redemption. And I just, I, I just found that really just very straightforward, true, simple, and really, why can't we just look into our hearts and try and find a way? As hard as it may be, I'm, I'm again, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm definitely not saying here that it's um, something that you can walk away from. But I, I am so happy to talk to you today. What a powerful message. And, boy, if we could change the setting in the courtroom, you and I, watch out. (laughs) I would love it. So, Fritzi, I like to ask you, like I ask every single person I can on this podcast when I remember it, do you think healing is a choice?
2: Healing is is proactive. Healing is an awareness. And healing, yes, I think it's a choice, but I think it's also, it's not like I don't want to shame anyone for not healing. I think Mm -hmm. we really have to be trauma-informed about this. You know, we... Mm -hmm. It, sometimes I don't like meditating because I don't like my busy mind doesn't need something to think about so healing I think is is an evolution it's something that we we move into quietly and and carefully so um, not to shame anyone though but healing is possible
1: yeah thanks well I I really uh, actually before we do sign off here um how can people reach you or find your organization me some information on that please
2: yes compassionprisonproject.org is our website and please scroll down to on their landing page their step inside the circle which was part Mm -hmm. of uh the wisdom of trauma so you can see what i'm talking about when people step inside the circle and get closer Mm -hmm. um it's the foundation of our work and it really it really helps healing and if you're so inclined to donate we need money to to buy workbooks for everybody um in our Trauma Talks curriculum, which is a 16-week curriculum, and we have eight workbooks, and it's a lot of material. But we want everybody in prison to really learn about trauma, learn about their behavior, and learn about how great they are. Mm-hmm. And this is this is an inquiry into their own greatness. And I think we all need this inquiry. But I'm throwing everything I've learned, and you know, in my lifetime, into these workbooks. And my staff is throwing everything they know. And so we need help paying for these workbooks and getting these to prisons throughout the United States and abroad eventually. And we also have a podcast called Compassion in Action. That's on our website. You can link there. And there's the top trauma experts in the world are included in in my interviews, and I just interviewed – Michael Singer, who's a very hard person to interview, and it's, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, so I'm very excited about that.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I can't wait to listen to that Yeah, because I'm also trying to get uh, Dr. Agabar Muerte, and I know he's very, very busy, so he's one I'm really, really trying to get a hold of. But, Fritzie, thanks again. You know, compassion is the first word in your organization, and by far, the first word that I would describe you. So I, I'm really grateful that you came to, to talk with me today. What a fabulous conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Juliet. And remember, compassion means to suffer with. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. It's really understanding where people come from and then and then giving them the grace to, to see them as a human. And that's what we're all capable of.
1: Great, thanks so much. Well, listen, everyone, what can you find to be compassionate about today? I throw that out there to all of you, whether it's driving on the highway and someone cuts you off or just didn't get the right meal or... Something simple, or how about feeding a homeless person? Let's let's find some mm-hmm. compassion. So go out and spread some love. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at JulietHuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30 year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.